first episode of the Old Sport Podcast. We have a huge lineup for the first episode today. We will be covering all the big results from the sporting world from the past seven days, the first three days, of the much anticipated Gabba Test match, the concerning story of Peng Shui, and the sporting world's favourite segment, Hit or Miss. And of course, we'll finish off with all your previews for a big week ahead. I'm Hamish Stewart, and I'm joined by the young star of Turek Paran, Hugo Carson, as well as Matt Wade's mega fan, Ben Rosen. Hugo, firstly and most importantly, how did the Turek Paran Section 11 go on the weekend? Uh, <laughs> good day, boys. Um, I actually missed the game on the weekend, sadly. So uh, I think they lost, but um, we also lost in the T20 game that I did play. So strong start for the boys. However, big game tomorrow. So we'll see how that goes. Very good. Uh, would you like to take us through some less important cricket results from um, around the world this week? Yeah. So we'll start off with the international cricket. Um, Pakistan defeated Bangladesh by an innings and eight runs. Actually, the fifth lowest innings total, first innings total to then win by an innings of 300. India also defeated New Zealand by 372 runs. The major story in that game was Ajaz Patel taking 10 wickets in the first innings, uh, but more on that later. Uh, Meanwhile, in the men's big bash, uh, the competition got underway with five matches already completed, including a doubleheader the other night. In the season opener, the Sixers dominating the Stars, while Thunder beat the Heat, Renegades beat the Strikers, Sixers won their second game against the Hurricanes, and finally the Scorchers beat the Heat. That just about wraps up cricket. Awesome. I'll take us through some soccer results from the weekend. Seems like a while ago now, but West Ham got a 3-2 steal win over Chelsea, and Divock Origi got a late winner for Liverpool against Wolves. Meanwhile, Raf Rangnick started in winning ways against Crystal Palace and Steven Gerrard and Antonio Conte continued their winning starts at Villa and Tottenham respectively. Newcastle also got their first win of the season as Bernardo Silva starts in Manchester City versus Watford. So there's been a change at the top of the Premier League table. City now lead Liverpool by a point, who then lead Chelsea by a point, whilst Tottenham, Man United and Arsenal all stay hot in the heels of West Ham for that fourth Champions League position. Rafa Benitez also got a pressure-relieving win midweek for Everton. Meanwhile, in the women's competition, the FA Cup final from last season was held and Chelsea got a 3-0 victory, which meant they got the treble. They're only the third English team, men or women, to complete that treble. And Sam Kerr, the Australian, got a double, which was very impressive. In the A-League, MacArthur on top of the men's A-League at the moment. Um, victories right past the season quickly ended with a 3-0 loss to Perth Glory and Sydney FC are still without a win three games into the season. The Women's A-League also kicked off last weekend. Over in Spain, Real Madrid extended their lead with a, a win over top four hopefuls Real Sociedad, and Barcelona lost again. They're languishing still in seventh place on the La Liga table. Nearby in Italy, in Syria, there was a really big win for Atalanta over Napoli. It meant that Napoli dropped away from the top position, and AC Milan are now four, above, four points above Atalanta, who are in fourth. We've got Inter and Napoli in between them there. In Germany, Bayern got a big 3-2 win in the Derby over Dortmund, and it was a six-point game, which gives them a four-point lead at the top of the table. And finally, in the Champions League games midweek, Barcelona are actually into the Europa League. They suffered a 3-0 loss to Bayern Munich, the real four from grace for them, and Xavi's got a huge job ahead of him. In a similar story, but for a much smaller club, Leicester are out of the Europa League after a 3-2 loss to Napoli, and their disappointing season continues. Ben, would you like to take us around the rest of the sporting world? Yes, happy to, Hamish. Um, We'll start with golf and PGA Tour is sort of in its its semi-off season, what they call the wraparound season. But we were in Albany in the Bahamas this week where Tiger Woods hosted an unofficial PGA Tour event um, for the benefit of his TGR Foundation. But although unofficial, the star-studded field did play off for a significant amount of world ranking points obviously bragging rights and, of course, the chance to get a photo with Tiger after winning his event. Um, In the end, the worthy recipient of such prestige was Norway's Victor Hovland, who came home strong in the final round with a six-under round to close out with a one-shot victory. Um, Over on the European Tour, um, same story, really, sort of a semi-off season. The season proper is going to start up in earnest with the lucrative Middle Eastern swing commencing in January. So look out for that. Uh, In AFL, biggest news to come out was the release of the round one fixture and then ultimately the total fixture. Um, We'll sort of sink our teeth into that a little later on. 
And then finally in tennis, the headlines have really been dominated by the political fallout from this Chinese star Peng Shui's allegation of sexual assault against a former Chinese vice premier. This is really a huge global sports story, uh, one that's sure to have lasting ramifications for the sport of tennis uh, in general. So we'll cover that in detail as our second main story of the night. Fantastic. Hugo, I think there's been a little bit more sport if we cross the, the Pacific. Yeah. Um, actually, in Dubai over the weekend, there was um, the World Rugby 7 Series and uh, the Australian women's actually won that event, which is a, a great news, followed up a win in November as well. Uh, and the South Africans won the men's men's competition. Meanwhile, in the US, there's another full week of NBA action. Nets still leading the East over the Bulls, Bucks, then the Heat, whilst Golden State and the Suns lead the West over the Jazz, Grizzlies, Clippers, and then the struggling Lakers. Uh, in the NFL, some big results in week 13. Uh, Patriots knocked off division rivals, Bills, becoming number one seed in the AFC. Steelers beat the Ravens after a bold decision from John Harbaugh not to attempt the two-point conversion in the final minutes whilst trailing by one point. Other big results include the Lions getting their first win of the season. They remain a one in three trillion chance of making the playoffs. Meanwhile, MVP favorite Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski once again teamed up, this time seeing the Bucks pass the Falcons. Meanwhile, in the Formula One, one of the most insane races in the history of the sport, uh, Lewis Hamilton ended up getting the win despite several incidents with Max Verstappen, who had to settle for second. Valtteri Bottas overtook Ocon on the finishing line for third. And Aussie Danny Ricardo recovered from a few poor races to finish fifth in what was truly one of the most insane races. Uh, there's so many stories from this race, but we'll talk a bit more about the championship later. It has to be said that the track itself was far too dangerous, dangerous and combined with poor driving and strange racing directing made it an awfully chaotic night. Oh, well done. That's a, a serious wrap. There's a lot going on in the world of sport. going on. <laughs> Do we sink our teeth into our first main story for the week, which is, of course, the first men's Ashes test, which is underway in Brisbane at the moment. Whoa. Hugo, I'll get you to take us through it. Just to note, at the time of recording, England are two for 203 in their second innings, and the match seems poised right at the moment. Well, I mean, you have to start with the first ball of the series, don't you? Um, according to Shane Warne, uh, average ball, half volley and leg stump. According to most others, uh, <laughs> a swinging Yorker hit the base of leg stump while walking, Rory Burns is walking over to cover. I'd love to watch um, Shane Warne try and face that. <laughs> 146 clicks. I mean, honestly, what a start from Stark. Um, somewhat silencing the critics, at least for, for a little bit, it seems like. Um, for England, pretty pretty disastrous day. Hasib Hamid batted all right for a 25. Ollie Pope, Joss Butler and Chris Wokes got them to a somewhat competitive total, but um, Aussie bowl is too good. And, I mean, I'd love to hear you boys, but, like, Pat Cummins, test captain, debut as test captain. I think not many, two, not many others have taken Fifa, I think. There's a couple others in the history of the game. So um, what a performance there. Fantastic. Yeah, I thought it's, it's been, been good viewing as an Australian fan. Um, pretty sobering stuff if you're following the Poms. But I agree. I mean, the, all the talk is around the first ball, uh, a wicket yeah. on the first ball of the Ashes, and in such fashion as well to bowl him around his legs. I was thinking of Harmison in the, the 2006 <laughs> Ashes as the, like sort of an anti like as a sort of foil for that ball in the sense that that set the tone, but in the complete opposite direction, yeah. the first ball of an Ashes series and all the, uh, you know, the symbolic significance that's associated with that. And you couldn't have asked for a better start. No, and the way absolutely. that the, the following two days have panned out or two and a half days, um, it's sort of followed in suit. Although, as you alluded to Hamish, as we recorded now, England are mounting somewhat of a fight back. I would add at the moment that I just think these next two days for England are completely crucial. I don't think they could tie. Um, they definitely can't win this test, but you know they can certainly salvage some respect. They can get some time at the crease and they could keep Australia in the field for a bit of time. I think we learned last summer um, that much of the key to India's success was just keeping Australia in the field for sustained 100%. periods of time. Anyone that's played cricket knows how soul crushing that can be just chasing leather around all day. I know I spent too much time doing it. <laughs> anyway, Hamish, your thoughts? 
No, I agree. Uh, yeah, completely agree. I think you guys covered that, that first innings really well. Uh, getting into the, the second inning, obviously Travis Head, we had the headlines with his mm. 152 off just 148 rocks. Um, thought he played that just about as well as he could have. I know people are saying that Manus Labashane maybe looks the best or whatever, but I don't think you could have asked much more from Travis Head at number five. With the momentum of the game kind of hanging oh. in the balance after Cameron yeah. Green left a one on middle stump first up. Uh, so <laughs> it's pretty impressive. I think it shows these guys who have been playing in the Sheffield Shield, Manus and, and Travis Head, uh, are shining in this, this first game because they've just got that match fitness and, and they're used to it, whereas these guys coming across from... Yeah, the 100%. IPL and also the, the T20 World Cup looking a bit scratchy. Warner obviously had a few chances on his way to 94, but also good for him to get off to a, a good start. Uh, I think the talking point over the next few days will be Marcus Harris. I think he's probably hoping, I don't know what he's hoping, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if Australia gets to bat again uh, and then how he goes in that. Like, he would not want to be chasing kind of a, a 60 margin in the second innings. He's got, he can only lose in that situation. Uh, if they were chasing more like, 200, you know, he's got a chance to make a half century or, or get yeah. a, a foot into this Ashes. But it was interesting looking at the Lions game going on the moment and Kawaja is still batting number five. So I thought they might yeah. have bumped Kawaja up to opening, especially after Travis had got that 100. But even in the second innings of that game, they've got Kawaja this is at five. So seems to me that they're going to give Harris a couple of tests at it and see how he goes. But he does seem to be that, um, that major talking point going forward. And then, of course, uh, Mitchell Starkey bowled that brilliant ball first up struggling a little bit in the second innings, as is Nathan Lyon, who's now bowled something like 30 overs since his last wicket. Yeah. He's stuck on 399. How many wickets has he got? <laughs> <laughs> By the time you're listening to this, he'll probably have 406 and he's taken seven for a roll through them. Uh, but anyway, that's just the way it Hope goes. So, uh, just one more I had on England's bowling. Um, interesting to see the Aussie batters go straight after Jack Leach. And clearly that's the role of the spinner in Australia is to try and tie down an end which Nathan Lyon usually does so well, and Ravi Ashman did so well last summer. It's going to be England's biggest weakness. That's the reason I don't think they can win the Ashes. Yeah. Uh, they might win at Adelaide with that pink ball, but I don't think they can win on the other the other pitches around Australia if they don't have a reliable spin as hold down an end. Um, and then, of course, Mark Wood as well. I thought he was by far the six of the bowlers. I really well, well. Yeah. up a few, but Wood was, Wood was awesome. I love his attitude as well, charging in all day. Um, Chris I Wake think it'll definitely be be works out for at least Anderson, maybe someone else out for Broad as well. Maybe they'll go with the the seamers in Adelaide, no Jack Leach, but um, four quicks. I mean, Lyon has a pretty good record in Adelaide, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then I reckon it was. In, I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking like all throughout the year, listen to a few uh, English podcasts within Cricket Weekly, these kinds of ones, and. The whole talk for England the whole year has been building up to the Ashes. It's saying even when they're in India, it was kind of like, you know, we're getting over here. We we'd love to play well and win, but it's more about, um, you know, getting guys some experience for the Ashes, getting confidence up. And now they're here, and then for Rory Burns to get bowled over first ball, like if this doesn't turn out well for England, if they don't at least be competitive this series, where do they go from here? Because they've mm. kind of built everything since the, that 2019 World Cup about this Ashes series, so. Will it be England's existential despair if they can't can't get over the line? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know. Yeah, they 100%. don't they don't seem to produce cricketers that are sort of apt for our shores for whatever reason. Um, you know, we've seen the transformation of Indian cricket over the last sort of decade even to the point where they're they're highly competitive over here and that the same thing hasn't seemed to occur um, with this recent fold of English cricketers. I'm happy to be Proven wrong. Well, not that happy, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what transpires over the next few months. It would be more exciting if they could. Yeah, they bat, so. yeah. bat for another half a day. Who knows what will happen? So, I think it's good for Test cricket that Ritten Milan have fought back, and um, we'll see what the Aussies can produce tonight and tomorrow morning. I guess. I mean, it'll all, as it does in in, in Australia, all come down to the second new ball. Really, see if if they can break through before or with that new ball, but. Exciting. Yeah, One I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on was Ben Stokes falling 14 no balls before he took the wicket before <laughs> one was called. I think, I mean, I actually feel a bit for Ben Stokes because he, I reckon, knew he was overstepping. Yeah. Like, he would have felt like it. Obviously, he's been out of the game for a while, so maybe he thought, oh, maybe I'm okay. Like, maybe I'm, I'm like, over-anxious about this or whatever. 
because he hasn't been called up on any of them. He hasn't even been told by the umpire, look, I think you're getting pretty close by as far as I can tell. So uh, then to get yeah. called back for that that wicket, I reckon it's pretty rough on him. Sorry, an interesting 100%. tweet by Izzy Westbury as well, saying if this was a cricketer from certain other nations, we wouldn't be questioning the technology. We'd be questioning matchfixing. So it's interesting well, how you I saw someone you call out because Shane Warne called out uh, Tarkul last summer saying, oh, maybe it's matchfixing and then... No comments about that when it's a, a white Englishman. Mm. So that's interesting considering he bowled 14 in a row or something like that. So uh, it, it is interesting. I, I'm not sure if you guys saw, but they the technology isn't working. So that's why they weren't called by the third umpire, which is bizarre to have in the biggest series, arguably in, in the world, not have the right technology. That and also RTS, real-time Snicko, also not available for this test. Seems bizarre and almost swept under the carpet a little bit. Well, it's amazing um, that, I mean, the idea being, I suppose, that it's so sen- hypersensitive that it picks up lots of noises. But surely technology can distinguish between noise no, off the cricket bat yeah. and other noise. I mean, I'm, obviously, it's all above my head, but I, that just, I'd be, I'd be yeah. amazed if they can't reason their way through that. It's also a really important part of the game now. Like, Sierra mm. shapes a lot of decisions and, and decisions by umpires as well on the yep. field as well. So without Snicker, that has a significant impact on how it's played. Uh, just one other one on the Ashes while we're here. Uh, just announced before we came on, by all likelihood, it looks like Hobart's going to get the, uh, the fifth test. Uh, Shane Warne ripping into the decision, I think, without a whole lot of thought um, on his broadcasting network. Uh, so interested to get your thoughts on on this call. I was a little bit surprised, especially after uh, Cricket Tasmania had a pretty big crack at Cricket Australia over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, I I think it's amazing. I I certainly wasn't expecting it. No one I've been speaking to was expecting it. I think we were all sort of thinking quite commercially about it, and it would obviously have yeah. made a lot more commercial sense for them to do the day night test at the G and I think some people like Shane Warner perhaps still thinking commercially about it. But um, I mean, for the overall flow of the series and I can't discount what it means to the Taswegians. um, I think that it does, it does make, it does make a lot of sense as much as it's disgruntled us Melbournians. I think it's very exciting for cricket in general to show that cricket Australia is actually, actually taking a step, for the love of the game rather than commercial, which we've seen so much with things like the Big Bash. Um, it is very exciting, I think, to, to have it down in Tassie. And I I know and hope that they get a huge crowd down there. So yeah. great, great news, I think. And worth saying as well, it's going to be a, a pink ball test. Uh, it'll be basically like England down there. An English summer is yeah. probably equivalent to, to Tassie summer in many ways. Has it been confirmed that it's a day-night test? I don't think so, but I think that was the bid that they put in was for a, for a day-night test. Okay. Um, so anyway, good excuse to go down to Tassie if you've got the time. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was the last time we played there against South Africa, we got rock and rolled for... We got- Absolutely demolished. nothing, yeah. yeah. And then we had a few players making their test debut. Yeah, that Madison. Oh, no, the, yeah, that Old test Ferguson. was Ferguson and Many. Was Many. It Joe yeah, Many? Joe Many, yeah. yeah. And then the, the next test, it was, it was the big uh, Hanscom, uh, Renshaw sure? and Lots of changes. Madison. Yeah, yeah. Well, hoping yeah. not for to not see a repeat of that. Yeah. If the series is one all or two all, uh, going in, or even if Australia is a test up going to Hobart, I think there will be a few demons floating around the heads. Even if not many of those players played their last time, uh, not been a happy hunting ground in the recent years. So uh, anyway, we'll leave the cricket there. Uh, ben, yeah. would you like to take us through our second main story of the week, but probably our most important story? Of the yeah, week? yeah. I mean, this is there's a lot to to unpack here. But for any of the listeners that that aren't across this Peng Shui controversy and and WTA controversy. Um, I'll quick. I'll quickly run through it because um, there is, as you said, Hamish, a lot to unpack. So Peng Shui, female tennis player from China, won twenty five um, titles, largely doubles titles. Was actually ranked number one in the world for doubles in two thousand and fourteen. The first Chinese tennis player to ever reach number one in the world. Um, what's really happened on the second of November? She accused a former a former. Chinese vice premier um, 
of forcing her into a sexual relationship and she made these accusations on a, a Chinese social media website. Um, the post was then quickly censored, uh, just about within the hour it was taken down. And then more or less she, she sort of went off the grid and on November 14, so 12 days later, the Women's Tennis Organisation CEO, uh, Steve Simon, actually started to voice concern um, that they were unable to, to contact Shui after multiple attempts. Um, she has then since appeared on a, sort of several video chats with the International Olympic Committee president, um, but it's all looked really quite staged and hasn't done a lot to allay public concerns about either her whereabouts or her safety. Um, and um, we're now at a stage where global stars from both the men's and the women's game have taken to social, me social media and really joined this growing chorus of support for Shui and condemnation of the Chinese government's handling of this saga. Uh, examples include Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in men's tennis, um, and Naomi Osaki. Um, we're now at a stage where the WTA has decided to suspend all tournaments in China, including in Hong Kong, amid concerns about Peng Shui's safety and the fact that she's, quote-unquote, not allowed to communicate freely um, and seems to have been pressured to contradict her allegations of sexual assault. So we want to talk about this because uh, it seems to have somewhat been washed out of the news cycle recently, um, and there are still serious and grave concerns about Shui's freedom, her safety and her whereabouts. Um, so obviously, first off the bat, we're all hoping for the best for, for Shui and hoping for a, a safe and harmonious resolution to all this. But it does give rise to numerous really important discussions that I think we should address um, one by one. And the first thing I sort of wanted to talk about which has come out of the WTA's decision to suspend its tournaments in China, is what is the role of boycotts in sport and what, what power, um, what is the power of boycotts in, in sports? Because obviously recently we've also had the US decision to diplomatically boycott the Beijing Winter Olympics as well as Australia, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll just, I'd really like to just unpack this. I'll start with, with you, Hamish, and I understand you want to talk potentially about a few links to, to these types of scenarios and, and the history of apartheid South Africa. So it's no, no mean feat, but I'll, I'll give you the floor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I echo all your thoughts. Very well researched and unpacked there. Obviously, the apartheid issue is an extremely different issue, a social issue to what's happening to, to Peng Shui at the moment, but it is a, a similar story in terms of the power of sport and the place of sport in kind of world politics. Uh, so in 1964, there was an Olympic ban against South Africa, and this was kind of the first uh, boycott related to, to sports uh, in response to the apartheid regime in South Africa. And in 1970, South Africa were expelled from the International Olympic Committee. There was a declaration formally made against apartheid in sport um, in the international sporting community in 1988. But before then, a number of sports had kind of taken decisions into their own hands and decided that they couldn't possibly afford to um, see, be seen to turn a blind eye or to in any way support or validate what was going on in South Africa. So athletics banned South African athletes in 1970, chess in 1974, uh, in 1970, there was an International Cricket Council moratorium on all cricket tours. Having said this, though, there were several rebel tours that continued to go to South Africa, but um, that's a separate issue entirely. In 1981, the Gulf World Cup was cancelled because South Africa were going to go to compete into it. And in 1985, the F1 had a boycott in South Africa as well. Rugby was a really interesting one, obviously a really important sport to South Africa and one that was seen to be lagging behind the times to some extent when it came to, to boycotts. So uh, rugby tours continued to South Africa until 1986, but South Africa excluded from World Cups in 1987 and 1991. In the tennis world, obviously relevant to this story, the South African Davis Cup team was banned in 1970, but what happened was it was then reinstated in a different zone. Uh, so it was formerly in the European zone, but then it was reinstated in 1973 to three years later into the 
uh, US zone, which was an interesting move. Uh, and uh, the South Africa competition of the Davis Cup went ahead in 1973. Uh, sorry, 1977, which actually resulted in protesters running onto the court in the middle of the match. Oh. Um, and sorry, that was in the US. Sorry, just to clarify that. So then there was an end of boycott uh, to do with all of South Africa's apartheid regime when the regime came came down in 1991. So there was a significant effort across sports when it came to, to this issue. This is interesting when we think about Peng Shui because obviously much more relevant to tennis uh, in terms of she's a tennis player and is it the place of other sports like soccer, um, basketball and other sports that are big in China to kind of get involved in this issue, especially considering China is such an important growth market for these sports and to kind of yeah. alienate them is different. The other thing that should be mentioned is that obviously the politics in China is extremely different to the politics in South Africa, and we have to be really mindful of that, again, when we're discussing these issues, but so do the, the sporting organisations when they're kind of addressing this. So I'm really glad to see that the, the individual players have taken a stance, and it's, I think, a positive step as well that the WTA is shown to take this really seriously because China's often um, been home to some really big WTA events. So the really interesting one to see where this goes from here, it's obviously extended now to the Olympics, in terms of these countries' diplomatic boycotting, that is a slightly different issue. That's been claimed on general human rights abuses, uh, not just related to the Peng Shui issue, but also diplomatic tensions between the US and China and also Australia and China as well. So I'm interested, Hugo, to get your thoughts on what you think the, the place of other sports are in this issue. Do you think it's outside their kind of realm? And also, where does the WTA kind of go from here? So just handle you that one. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um... I mean, I think it's it's huge that the WTA have actually taken that that step. Once again, it's showing um, support for the people involved in the organisation and showing that they have their representation, uh, they have their players' backs. Um, obviously, that's a very brief summary of the many um, wheels uh, that are turning in this situation. Um, honestly, it's, it seems bizarre that more people haven't come out and spoken about this. I mean, a, a global tennis star's safety and um, freedom is in doubt here. And uh, again, it's just the WTA and a few tennis players. It's not going around the news cycles anymore not much has come out to confirm that she's still safe or she's safe now. So I just feel like maybe we'll have to come to more, more sports um, organizations to step up and, and do something about it. Um, no, yeah. I agree. I mean, I think these, this is a, you know, a really tough one. And as you said, Stuart, um, it's, it's highly nuanced. And so it is, it's sort of hard to, to give any definitive answers. But I think there are, two, there are two very different issues at stake when you're talking about boycotts in sport, and that is organisational boycotts um, and then individual player boycotts. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lot easier for an organisation with all its financial backings and, and whatnot um, to, to make these more political-style protests. I think... We enter grey areas a little bit with when we start to expect individual athletes to make similar style protests. Um, and this is actually what I wanted to talk to you about, Hugo, because obviously you follow the F1 a lot more closely than I do. But like from my understanding, obviously that this is all coming to a head, the F1 season in the Middle East, yeah. and there are certain drivers that have issues with promoting events in the Middle East and, and everything that, that goes with that. And that's been the same across a lot of sports. Obviously, I'm a huge golf fan, but there's constant yeah. controversy about players earning enormous sums of money to, to go and perform um, in, in Middle Eastern states where obviously there are freedoms and rights that are not being afforded to certain sects of the society that, that we would obviously want and expect. Um, how, where do you fall down? on the role of the individual athlete compared to the role of the, the organisers? I feel like in the Formula One, the FIA has proven 
many times that they're not an organisation to step out and do something. Uh, it took a huge amount of pressure or a large amount of pressure from Lewis Hamilton for them to, to, to bring in the Black Lives Matter. Um, Mercedes um, supported that hugely, which was great, but FIA itself um, had to get, be heavily encouraged to do something about it. And now then even then, a lot of the drivers themselves didn't support the movement by taking a knee, uh, which again is a separate issue. But it, I think in the Formula One itself, it's come to a lot of drivers' yeah. own. It's their responsibility themselves because the FIA isn't taking any action. And you've seen drivers wear T-shirts speak out publicly. Um, recently, Sebastian Vettel set up a, a women's driver academy in Saudi Arabia, which is a great step. Uh, he's a driver who's who's been proven to do things um, for the community rather than just actually speak out um, and complain about things yet still take massive amounts of monies, money from these organisations and um, strange backings and dark world of Formula One, basically. So <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it's an interesting one because there's it just is. so much money and especially coming from these countries to get races and, they just announced today, I think, that the final race of the season will be held in Yas Marina Circuit for the next 10 years. So that's um, an interesting one again. Um, but, yeah. yeah, there's so many, I, so many. Yes. Sorry, Hugo. Just to touch um, on a slightly different one. I think um, all these issues, you know, we've got human rights in Saudi Arabia and, and women's rights as well. We've got racism going on. Uh, all around the sporting world, in particular in, in the football and cricket world at the moment, and to a lesser extent in the, the AFL world as well. And then I think with this Peng Shui issue, there's two issues, aren't there? There's the first one is her safety and her freedom and her whereabouts and the fact that she is a global superstar and an icon for the sport in China and she deserves to be um, to be free and to be safe. Um, and the second one is censorship as a, as a more broad issue i think if we're being realistic no matter how much sport boycotts go on i don't think uh censorship is going to change overnight in china but i do think when you look at the power of what happened in south africa and what's happened in other parts around the world especially in the last couple of years with the black lives matter movement sport is a really important part of uh just making it no diplomacy and just a really important point um and it has an effect like it's had a serious effect on the South African people, a really proud nation and sporting nation as well. And so I think there is a legitimate case to be made that uh, there could be a really positive outcome that comes around from pressure in terms of Peng Shai's safety herself. And it might be one that, you know, when the government or whoever's responsible weighs it up, it's worth not fighting this one and, and facing the, the outcomes otherwise. So it'd be really interesting to, to see what happens. I also just want to say we should probably move on, but it's not something that will... Um, stop talking about. We're going to keep on top of this story as we as we go forward. I think it's really important that the media doesn't just let things drift off just because there's another story coming away. Um, that's the only way that, that we're going to get a positive outcome. So, well done, guys. Welcome back. Uh, so we'll now head into the uh, famous fan moment of the week segment. So basically, uh, if you'd like to send in your, your favourite moment of the week, can come from anywhere from the US, Australia, anywhere in the world, even could be your, your local career ground. Uh, just send it into the, the socials or the emails at oldsportpod at gmail.com. And uh, if you're lucky enough, you might get read on the podcast. Um this week's fan moment of the week comes from friend of the podcast, Stephen Wiley, uh, who chose the F1 Drivers Championship and particular, in particular the, the race last week and the upcoming race um, this weekend. Basically, as it stands, for those who don't follow the season, each race uh, you are given points as to where you finish uh, and more points for the higher up you finish. So... There's been an entire season battle between the two protagonists, Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. As it stands, going into the final race, they are even on points to the exact T. So this has happened once in the history of Formula One, setting up a title race equal on points, as close as it can get, 
it really is a huge moment in the sporting calendar and it, it just, it can't get any closer. They've crashed several times throughout the season. Each week it's been those two up front, everyone else behind, both of them pushing each other on as, as fast as they can get. It's, it's a very exciting time for the sport and for the sporting calendar. So make sure you're, you're tuning in 12 a.m. on Sunday night to, to watch the race. And if you're a diehard fan, definitely be following the practice sessions and, and qualifying as well. Uh, I'm not sure if you boys have been following the season, but, but if you haven't, then uh, definitely tune into the race. It, it's going to be huge. Look, you've made me inspired to watch it, Hugo. I've never watched a race <laughs> of F1 in my it, life. It just can't possibly get closer. It's It's been up and down all season. Verstappen's looked like he had it wrapped up and then Hamilton's come back and won the last few races and it was a crazy, crazy race last weekend. But um, it's it's all square and it's just unbelievable, honestly. It, um, yeah, no, it really is. I mean, I, I personally haven't watched that many races. I've watched a couple, but I had a friend of mine telling me the most amazing stat and I honestly don't know if you made it up. Um, <laughs> I can't remember it word for word, but it was something like if you accumulate the, the total of min- hours, minutes, seconds that they've driven throughout the season, um, they're, they're still like almost completely neck and neck. Um, wow. Which when you think about how far they've gone and the fact that both of them have crashed at certain points in time and, and, and everything else that, that goes into the, the ups and downs of an F1 season, that that's like literally like a, you know, a matter of seconds between them and then miles to third. Um, I think, I mean, rivalry in sports for anyone that likes sports, it doesn't matter what the, the sport is. When the narrative's there, um, and unquestionably the narrative is there with this one, I think it's enough to, to whet all of our appetites and pique all of our interests. Uh, just one, one final thing is, is it could be a huge moment of, of next week is they're currently, even on points, however, it comes down to a tiebreaker in which Max Verstappen wins out as he has won more races. So if they were to crash and neither of them finish the race, Max Verstappen will win the championship. Mm-hmm. So that is a huge uh, permutation going into the race that people don't like to talk about as much uh, because, you know, it'd be quite unsportsmanlike and there might be some regulations that I'm not aware about, but there's been pa- crashes in the past to decide titles. So it's going to be an interesting race nonetheless. Just All as right, if there wasn't enough buy. sport on. Yeah. <laughs> We should be talking about the F1 after that, that hype. Um, <laughs> yeah, good plug. All right. Well, thank you for that, Stephen. Um, that, that's Stephen Wiley, everyone out there, um, friend of the show. Um, he'll appreciate that. So I'll get into my moment of the week now. Uh, that was one of the most tremendous uh, cricket performances we've ever witnessed, especially in, on the subcontinent, uh, fighting the battle, uh, almost a lone hand, and that was by Mayank Agarwal, who scored... 150 and, and a half century in the second innings awarded uh, man of the match for his performance against so. India. Did anything else happen in that test match, Hamish? Uh, anyone apparently, else apparently this guy took 14 wickets with 10 in, 10 in one innings, which is uh, uh, not a bad shout. Uh, and also good, not it? out in both of his innings as well. And that was Ajat Sadel. <laughs> I honestly think this man of the match um, kind of decision is, is one of the most horrendous I've ever heard <laughs> in any sport ever. So just to put into context, uh, Ajaz Patel is the third person in the history of Test cricket, men's or women's, which has been going since the mid 1800s to take all 10 wickets in an innings. I couldn't tell you how many people have made 150 uh, in a Test match, but I'm going to guess it's going to be about 10 times more than than the amount who have taken 10 Someone wickets in an innings. Someone did the statistics, and they equivalented uh, 10 wickets to 450 runs. There you go. There you go. And just worth saying as well, like. I think 10 wickets is uh, much, much harder to do, especially to do it in a match that you lose um, yeah. as well as a team. So he's, to, to do this, you have to rely on like none of your other bowlers performing well, you just having a blinding match, but also creating enough, enough chances uh, to, to win the game. And Sorry, to, to take all 10 wickets. Uh, anyway, it was a superb performance and done by the most unlikely of people as well, which I think made it so heartwarming. It was one of those ones you can sometimes tell when there's a bit of a vibe. You get a few messages, you just something yeah, on Twitter, and it gets to kind of yeah. eight wickets, and you're like, it's starting to spread, and then you're like, gosh, someone's on eight wickets. I was watching anyway, but I know a lot of people probably tuned into those last <laughs> couple, and, and the cheer, the cheer, even though the match was gone, India scored enough runs in that first inning. 
match was way gone, but um, an incredible moment for Jazz Patel. So that was my moment of the week. Well done to my Kagawal. Uh, nothing to take away from your innings. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would uh, just a question without notice. Um, if you hypothetically were on nine wickets in an innings oh. and a ball is skied to you in the field, not <laughs> off your bowling. How hard are you trying to catch that? Is it getting lost in the sun? The question is, if Pat Cummins was on nine wickets, would he bowl David Warner at the other end? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, uh, no, yeah, I think you're definitely dropping that one. Yeah, dropping it every day of the week. Um, and, yeah, there are a few interesting stories I read throughout the week of uh, Sri Lanka in particular, Mira Lutheran got nine and eight wickets a few times and literally putting on, like, the batsman from the other end and um, who every time managed to pick up a dolly somehow with because you're bowling at your number 11s by that stage, right? So yeah. um, number 11 needs one. And apparently there was this one where um, they had one of the Schlanken, Murilithrans on nine wickets, and they've got Schlanken guy bowling. It's one of Kumar Sangakara's first games. He's wicket-keeping. Um, and the guy smashes it, edges it into the stumps. He's up at the stumps, so, you know, sometimes they, they don't always get given. No one appeals except for Kumar Sangakara who starts <laughs> celebrating. So the umpire is forced to give it out uh, because there was an appeal. If he had an appeal, Mira Lutheran could have had a crack at the 10 from the other end anyway. I'm sure you sure regretted that one. Uh, okay, it's now time for the Sporting World's favourite segment, Hit or Miss. Indeed it is. I'll lead us off. And this is... This is one that's grown on me. When I first when I first <laughs> thought about it, it was it was largely written out of spite, and you'll understand why in a second. But the more I've thought about it, I think I could make a pretty compelling case for it. And it is this: I'm saying that the first day of an Ashes series, be it hosted in Australia or England, should be a national public holiday. And I was I came up with this while I was sitting at work during the first day of the Gabba <laughs> getting told off for being on my phone in some horrifically un-Australian manner. Um, and I just thought if we can have a public holiday for oh. the Melbourne Cup and for the grand final, not to belittle the significance of either of those events, but the Ashes is something that really does bind the, the, the nation uh, in a sporting sense. Everyone gets behind the team. The first day of an Ashes test is one of the the best moments if you're even somewhat into sport, let alone cricket. Um, I just think there is a defensible argument to be made that you could give us workers a day off to watch the test. What do you guys think? Is that hit it or has miss? the longest intro into hit or miss that this podcast will ever see. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know how Ben feels I'm a bit riled up about it. I think it's a, a hit, <laughs> uh, although the logistics of it are, uh, interesting. I think it would be oh. tricky, especially with um, changing dates as well. And every few years, it would be a public holiday, which is a tricky one as well for calendars. Um, however, uh, you you can just imagine the 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 hype and the feelings in in the nation if it, if it was a public holiday. Everyone be on their TV. Imagine the crowd, the gabba. Um, oh, it would be huge. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, I've thought long and hard about this one. I'm going to start with the Ashes in the UK. I think that's a miss because it starts late anyway at night. So be more inclined to giving the following day off. Um, and when it comes to the one in Australia, I really tossed and turned. I, I thought there were two answers. I thought either it's a hard miss with the caveat that every first day of an Ashes series has to start on a Saturday. Uh, there is no excuse for starting on a Wednesday like happened this year. Or you can go hit and it's got to start on the Friday and then you've kind of got Friday, Saturday, Sunday leading in um, long weekend to, to enjoy it. Obviously, I'm not going to worry about the uh, logistics of it because I don't have to do Australia's calendar each year. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it would be one of those two options. I'd, I wouldn't have a public holiday midweek, but I would have one on a Friday to make it a long weekend. Um, but I think easier would just be to put it on a Saturday. Um, like there's it. a good one. There's a good one. Well, but the traditional right. you got to think of the traditional test starting starting day on a Thursday. You have the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That was a big argument for the the four day tests. But I mean, four, four day tests are a big miss for me. But that's again another issue. <laughs> yeah, that's no, a good point. It's a good point. Okay, so mine is touching back into the AFL world, which um, at the end of the day is is what uh, is the center of the universe. So. <laughs> 
It's a statement. It's either hit or miss. The AFL has made an inspired decision by opening the season with a grand final rematch on a Wednesday night rather than the traditional Carlton versus Richmond primetime Thursday night game. Hit or miss. We'll start with Ben. Um, I'm probably a hit on that one, I think. Um, I think that I've had more or less enough of, of Carlton Richmond. And I think we all have <laughs> as well. Um, I, I do want the AFL to, to find something and stick with it, though. That's probably my only hesitation with this. I just like mm. the idea that you, you, you find a matchup that works and almost irrespective of, of form, I just sort of like the, um, the symbolism of just two big Victorian clubs going at it. But I am, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty over seeing the same Carlton Richmond game every year. I mean, it gives a different game and I might think differently. But yeah, I'm a hit on that one. What do you reckon, Hugo? Uh, I think it's a hit, but... Surely not. You're a Carlton fan. (laughs) No, I I just think... I mean, the Carlton-Richmond game, I think you'll still get at least 60,000. You won't get the same numbers, but you'll still get a huge crowd because of two Victorian teams. And Carlton and Richmond have huge member numbers now. Both teams still growing. We'll see if Richmond grow after their their season outside of the grand final. But um, a big argument is is you look at the midweek games with the state of origin, they have huge viewership numbers. Um, I think a couple of years ago, it was bizarre to have the season opener on a Thursday. I mean, obviously, how far do you go back? But also another with the state of origin, you look at the US sports and um, their Thursday night football is huge. Um, depends on the game again. But it just seems the only thing just seems out of the blue, really. No one was talking about it. And then they've just jumped on this. It will be a, a huge game, no doubt, with huge Melbourne fans. Um, some A good Bulldogs presence, I'm sure, as well. But I also like the idea of sticking with the same opener. And it seemed like the... AFL community had come to accept that the Carlton Richmond was the season opener and a good one at that, even though the games hadn't been as good. Arguably, this this season should be the closest one out of several yeah, years. That's the irony. Past, but, this one actually um, might be a good game. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I hope so, at least. Um, but I still think it's a hit. At least try something. When, you, when they can, because they know this is going to be a blockbuster. Um, but then again, you could save it for a, for a round that might might have been a bit quieter, and then you have that blockbuster to start on a Thursday or Friday night. I um, reckon, personally, uh, it would have just made much more sense to... I'm very happy for it to open with a grand final rematch, and I think I really miss not having the grand final rematch in the first weekend. I think it should always be there. Yeah. Uh, but... Why not just do that on Thursday night and move Carlton Richmond to Friday night? Why why start it on a Wednesday night? Um, That's true. Which... Because Hamish, then you wouldn't get St Kilda Collingwood on a Friday, <laughs> Friday night. night. And what Friday would the night. AFL community do if they didn't get St Kilda Collingwood on the first Friday of the <laughs> AFL season? Who is in these focus groups? I mean, I could get a job at the ABC. <laughs> no. <but honestly. laughs> um, um, yeah. All right, Hugo, we'll move on. Uh, just a, a quick one. Um, Football is the last major sport which isn't completely driven by analytics. Football as in soccer. Okay. Hamish? I thought long and hard about this one. Uh, I decided it all comes down to how you classify major sports. So I think I I will say hit. I think um, it's not completely driven by analytics. I think almost every other one I could think of is. Having said that, there's still like this push to have like XG ratings and all these things for like chances or like trying to quantify the chances of who's going to win and stuff, which in a football game, or sorry, yeah, in a soccer game, football game, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I presume you meant like soccer by this football. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, good. That would have been, that would have been unfortunate. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I think about every other game, it's uh, pretty much data driven. You're looking at kind of your, your basketballs, cricket, baseball, AFL, See, um, what rugby, you mentioned there, so. basketball was the only one I was considering isn't as analytics-driven. Obviously, you've Why got the big push towards three-point games. But then when it comes to playoffs, 
it's all about one-on-one matchups. And um, Ben, you answer first and then. Yeah. Uh, well, I know it's yeah. actually interesting what you're saying because it sort of feeds into what I think about it. So yeah, like yes, in as far in so far that football doesn't seem to me to be driven by analytics and a lot of other sports do. But I would say when it comes like to crunch time in high pressure games, big finals games, whatever it may be, I feel like the more calculated nature of sports seemingly goes out the window. As you said, maybe yeah. there's more to one-on-one cream rises to the top, all the usual sort of um, buffet of cliches come out. But I, I reckon that when you do get sort of superstars of the game take over and the, the sort of form and structure does fall away to an extent um, and you get a bit more old style sport, then, then I don't see yeah. it being as calculated and analytical. The one thing I would say is I was thinking about it. I reckon that the the kind of balancing act for football is I think it's the most um, strategic of any sport I could think of anyway in terms of the strategy, uh, in terms of how you formulate your team um, or your set pieces. All these kind of, there's a lot of thinking that goes into it. I just don't think it's data-driven like no. the rest of the sporting world. When you look at like kind of like a cricket or um and baseball, the two big ones yeah when it's just like a lot of data and there is like a fair amount of analytics i just don't think it's quite taken to the same extent of football where so much so much focus in the football lead up to games and stuff is what formation you're going to play and who plays where and yeah. who's got a left foot and who's got a right foot and this kind of thing but in terms of the data in terms of dribbles completed and tackles made it just yeah. doesn't seem to be as important um anyway hugo what did, what did you think I was just going to say basketball for me is another one that's not completely analytics driven. The game has changed due to analytics with the three-point shot. However, an individual game, all teams use the same tactics now, basically. Um, There is a lot of analytics in it as to stop, you know, um, tactics to stop a player like Giannis. Um, However, when it gets down to playoffs and you just see Kevin Durant dribbling down the court and then just shooting over someone, there's, there's not too many analytics in that. However, obviously, they look at ways shot percentage is higher or lower and things like that. But that's the other one apart from football that um, I think would be less analytics driven. But I just, I just love that analytics are so heavily involved in sport personally. It's just a... And I think that a lot of the world needs to accept that analytics play a major role in most sports, even though, especially in cricket, it's not talked about as much as it should be. Whereas a lot of the teams rely on analytics nowadays. Fantastic. That brings us to the end of our hit or miss segment. So Ben, I realized I didn't even look at your moment of the week. So I completely ruined it by talking about. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. I've adapted. You wanna... I'm on my feet here. Okay. No, otherwise no. we can just cut and paste that combo down here. So whatever you prefer. Well, see um, how this one goes. And then, yeah, and then let me know. Do you want me to jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So my moment of what has been a very big week in in world and Australian sport was, as we touched on before, Mitch Stark's first ball of the Ashes series. Um, And I have have a little bit to say about it. I've got a few thoughts about what a single ball in cricket can actually achieve. Because you hear a lot of bowlers cry foul about, about how, you know, batsmen get favoured because you make hundreds and it's all over the front page. But what a bowler can do with a single ball, a split second, is etch their name into the history books in a way that sort of no other other aspect of the game of cricket allows you to do. Um, and Mitch Stark's first ball for me has probably done that, I reckon. Bowling someone on the first ball of the Ashes. I think of a few others and um, we could just get into it. A little bit of a Ryan Harris. Here. But yeah, <laughs> Ryan Harris, live on in our collective sporting memory. Um, I've also got Stark to McCullum in the, yeah. the World Cup the final, Gadding Ball. Um, there are a few of them that you just remember forever. And I would put um, I'd put Stark's ball right up there for mine. So yeah, that's that's there as my moment of the week. Agree? Awesome. Disagree? Love it. Reaction? Love it. Love it. Love yeah, it. I, love uh, it. <laughs> I just, just want to search up so I get my people right here. Um, on the last ball of the day, who got Viv Richards out? On the last ball of the day, Dennis Lilly? Mm. Um, Seriously, not right. 
too strong in your memories. There's <laughs> there's a great one with Shane Warne and, and Ian Healy where last ball of the day and Warne goes down to Healy to build up a bit of tension and they meet in the uh, middle yeah. of the pitch and pretend to be talking about tactics. And, yeah. of course, well, as the story goes, they, they talk <laughs> about where they're going to go for dinner tonight just to build the tension and then he gets the wicket, Warren gets the wicket yeah, on the last that's a, ball. Why he loves telling that story. And it evolves every time he tells oh, it. Yeah. Like it's slightly less and less <laughs> believable every time. Both legs. Uh, another one that I can think of, the one that sticks in my head from the Big Bash was Glenn Maxwell coming down the pitch and leaving it. Obviously, oh, it was yeah. done by the, the batsman <laughs> yeah, Goodness. Yuck. Um, yeah, there's very few on the flip side. I think, obviously, Steve Ward's four off the last ball. Yeah. Um, but there's very few, like, of those, the single moments. And then I suppose you can get more niche in terms of, I remember when Tom Curran bowled that no wall to David oh. Warner, who's apparently now been out five, five times, times off no balls and gone on to make hundreds in four or five of them. Four um, times. Anyway, yeah, four, four times. So This is the only time he hasn't. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's a really good moment of the week. Uh, well done, Ben. Hugo, would you like to take us through our on this week, on this day segment? Sure. So... Um... Basically, this past week or past two weeks was the 65th anniversary of the Melbourne Olympics. Um, I think that's right. <laughs> uh, Australia, obviously, still obsessed with the Olympics, as shown by the Tokyo Olympics this year. So I thought it was a good one to highlight. Um, can you imagine if the the Melbourne Olymp- the Olympics were in Melbourne in 2032 instead of Brisbane? <laughs> Um, so just to look back in the in those Olympics, Australia came third uh, in the medal count with 35 medals. Dawn Fraser led the swimming team, winning gold and breaking world records in the 100 meter free and also in the four by 100 meter free. Um, uh, really important in those uh, moment in those Olympics actually was the Hungary and Soviet Union water polo match, um, dubbed the blood in the water match. I'm not sure if you boys know too much about it. Uh, but basically it took place on the 6th of December um, against the background of the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. Um, Hungary defeated the USSR 4-0. And uh, the name, the blood in the water match, was um, coined after the, a Hungarian player emerged with blood pouring out of his eye in the middle of the game. Um, so it's a famous match um, between the two nations, hugely aggressive physical match. Um, and once again shows the influence of politics in sport, as we've already covered several times in the podcast today. Um, I'm not sure if you had anything to add to that, Ben, but just a, a huge moment in world sport, really. Yeah, that was. not uh, On the general discussion, I do just, and we might um, link it on our socials, but there's a, there's a social media page called 20th Century Melbourne Australia Photos, Videos and Memories. And they put out this sort of six to eight minute video earlier this year of Melbourne around the time of the 1956 Olympics. And some of the footage was all in, in high quality and colourised. And some of the footage of Melbourne of places, anyone, anyone listening that lives in Melbourne, you, you recognise it all. But it's so cool to see. And wow. it gives you this real sort of, taste of of what the flavor in the air must have been like hosting olympics because i mean melbourne was a a pretty brand new city at the time in terms of acting on the global stage and and to get the olympics was obviously a huge coup um and you can almost just like sense the collective effervescence in the air when you watch these so i'll see if i can i can track it yeah definitely definitely share those arguably bigger then than it was now yeah to host the olympics considering Brisbane got it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. Like, Melbourne is ready for another Olympics. And I don't know what who's responsible for these kinds of decisions, but quite plainly, I don't think Brisbane is um, in comparison, just in terms of the infrastructure and these kinds of things. Nothing against Brisbane as a city, but I went to watch the Gabba Test a couple of years ago. And it's by far the worst cricket ground in Australia that I've been to. So I'm sure it's a good excuse for them to uh, kind of renovate it and this kind of thing. But with an Olympics in Melbourne be something else at the moment with all the new stadiums that have gone up in the last labelled as the next Kevin Peterson with all this Brisbane hate. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no. Nothing against Brisbane. (laughs) No, nothing Um, As long as 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 we're in the cricket there this time, it's all good. Yes. Um, Hugo, you're on again. Moment of the week. Um, So pretty big moment of the week that I feel like a lot of sports fans might not know about. Um, But 
basically the Super W competition runs every year, which is the women's uh, rugby union domestic competition. Uh, and as up to this year, including this year's competition, all players and teams were unpaid and had to had to take leave from work to go play these games and, and grow the game. And it was only this coming week, past week, sorry, um, that the Melbourne Rebels were the first team to announce their players will be paid. Um, it's a huge announcement. Um, considering they have a smaller market share um, than a lot of the other other states, the women's rugby is huge in New South Wales, yet that team is still unpaid. Um, it shows Victoria's commitment to women's sport uh, and huge news for women's rugby. rugby. Uh, the ABC suggested it could open the option to international players, especially the Pacific Islanders, to the competition. Um, although contracts and payments haven't been agreed yet, uh, it's huge news and really exciting for all young women and girls who do have any interest in rugby. Um, although we don't have any guests on this first episode, we have a very exciting announcement coming up in regards to this topic. So make sure you're following all our socials at Hugo, would you like to take us through some upcoming events we have in the next seven days? Yeah, absolutely. So um, starting with cricket, we've got the second Ashes Test starting in Adelaide in a week's time on the 16th of December. Also have a West Indian tour of Pakistan. They're playing three T20s over there, uh, plus a full week of Big Bash, Big Bash action with a Saturday doubleheader. Won't bother running through the games. It's on every night, so <laughs> tune in and... <laughs> Maybe you'll go to a game. Who knows? Uh, in the US, the NBA, pretty quiet week. Uh, Lakers and Grizzlies actually played off today. Um, Celtics and Suns play each other while Golden State and 76ers also play. They're a couple bit decent-sized games. Uh, in the NFL, Bills play the Tampa Bay. Uh, actually, I think that's the Bucks' last game against a winning team, so they'll storm through to the playoffs probably with a bye. Uh, and the Cardinals also play the Rams in Monday Night Football, which should be a good game. Uh, and then, as I've mentioned already, the Formula One is on this weekend. So um, that's the final race of the season is at Yas Marina Circuit in Abu Dhabi. It's a title decider. It's a faster track this year. Who won't be up at 12 a.m.? <laughs> Love it. Pretty quiet week in the soccer world upcoming. Uh, so we've got in the Premier League, the main event will be Steven Gerrard's homecoming for Aston Villa against Liverpool on Sunday. Uh, we did have... Um, sorry, we will have also a big midweek battle between Arsenal and West Ham, which is really important for that, that fourth position race, especially as Arsenal had a little bit of a, a dip in form as of late. Very good. Um, in other global sports, one that I've been keen to get into, Tiger Woods has announced a date for his comeback. He's playing in the PNC Father-Son Challenge with his son Charlie Woods next weekend. Um, this is a tournament that's set up all past major championship winners can play with one other member of their family in a sort of semi-official event but it's the first time we'll see tiger woods playing live golf since his horrific car accident earlier this year and for the people that i know that are broadly interested in golf um there is a general sense of euphoria which is um really nice because when it comes to golf tiger doesn't just move the needle he is the needle so um look for all your friends that are somewhat interested in golf or tiger woods to be glued to a tv screen next weekend all right, what are we moving on to now? Some tips and bold predictions for key fixtures coming up. What have you got, Hamish? Well, I had a look through the key fixtures and I couldn't really come up with a, a bold prediction for any in specific. So what I've done instead is made a bold prediction just in general in world sport, and that is that vaccine mandates are set to become an increasingly polarised topic across Australian sporting codes. So we've seen a few different Australian sporting codes take different kind of um, approaches towards this very delicate issue. I think in the next month or so, we're going to see this become a seriously heated topic around Australia's sporting codes. We'll see if I'm proven right or wrong, but I suspect we'll be talking about this a little bit more in the future. There we go. Um, I've got uh, a, a very, very different one. I think that England's going to win in Adelaide. I think they're going to play both Broad and Anderson. Um, and I think that they're going to level the series at one all and set us up for a bumper Boxing Day. Better Love get a it. refund on my tickets to Adelaide then. 
just as we say that, England got the stumps two down, so they're two for 220, just 58 runs behind, but it doesn't matter, so we won nil up. Uh, uh, guy, it's hard to, hard to go. I, I think it has to be an F1 bold prediction, but I mean, you can't really be bold in either prediction. Hamilton appears to be the favourite. Um, I'd love to see a Verstappen win, but um, it seems like Hamilton might might pull off an incredible victory um, and solidify his argument to be the GOAT of Formula 1 to this stage. Uh, obviously, several arguments for Schumacher or Senna or several others, but um, a win for Hamilton would be huge uh, for his stakes. case for that. Um, but, yeah, hopefully Verstappen gets the win. All right. Well, that is all we have time for in this inaugural edition of the Old Sport podcast. Really sorry to LeBron James that we couldn't quite squeeze you in tonight, but we'll have to reschedule Next that week. interview. Um, but thank you all for listening. We hope you, we hope you found it amusing and interesting and even a touch edifying. Uh, and if we've ticked at least one of these boxes, we'd love for you to join us next week as we tackle the fallout from the Gabba test, as well as the usual buffet of news, fixtures and hot takes from the sporting world. But from Hamish, Hugo and myself, it is goodbye for now. 